0: Yeah, on. Two twins Name? Robbie trigger Age? Twenty-two
1: years old. Occupation? Guitar. Name? john
0: densmore
1: eight. 23 occupation. percussionist name? raymond daniel Manzarek, eight, born 212 39 occupation Musician, organist. name uh jim jim he's so mysterious isn't he <laughs> you know just jim no occupation no anything else has a, a band getting off a plane ever been like more famous than that clip right there.
0: Yeah. Very iconic scene and uh, recreated quite nicely with a few liberties as far as accuracy, which, which there were quite a few, I'm sure on the Oliver Stone movie, but welcome to two twins in an album episode
1: 19 I, I'm guessing that the members of the, of the Doors were, uh, whatever was going on on that plane, I'm sure was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I bet they never had a boring plane ride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, we, we usually talk about which, uh, what album we're going to do, you know, a week or so beforehand. Did you watch the Oliver Stone movie as part of your episode research.
1: I watched a movie, but not that movie.
0: Ah, okay. So,
1: and I love the Oliver Stone Doors film. Yeah, I think it's so memorable. It's got amazing imagery and I don't like most works of Oliver Stone. I don't really know how incredibly accurate it is, but it's a very interesting portrayal. What I did watch and what I've watched frequently is the mr mojo rise in the documentary about this album
0: ah yeah which
1: is a little bit more of a you know uh documentary historical portrayal versus the stone thing but they're both great
0: a little bit more authorized perhaps or uh (laughs) taking a few less liberties i did i i probably hadn't watched the oliver stone movie in 10 years at least and uh and i gave it a lap and uh you know, I'll tell you what. There are a lot of interesting um, takeaways and a lot of interesting representations of of Jim and the Doors, but really, uh, lots of boobs and lots of butts is there's really a, what's going
1: on. There's a lot of ass. There's man ass. There's woman ass. There's, there's
0: yeah, lots. It's, it's boobs and butts everywhere. And um, but you know, and you and I are pretty pretty decent Oliver Stone fans, and obviously JFK is one of our favorite movies, and I think. I think he did some interesting things with Nixon and, you know, some of his other work. I actually think on the Doors movie, yeah, it gets a little trippy and it gets a little out there. I mean, what Oliver Stone films don't. But I think it was a pretty good representation of the drama and turmoil, which probably is difficult to even recreate or represent as far as what The Doors was dealing with, and particularly what they were dealing with as they kind of headed down the stretch here for tonight's album. But I think it captures the sort of chaos of the band uh, actually rather nicely. And when you match it up with some of the more, you know, historical accounts and truly, you know, authorized, you know, non-fictional accounts there's more that's alike than that's different, uh, even from this Hollywood production compared to a lot of the accounts of the way things actually were and going through an incredible time period of, of chaos and of um, disorder as they got to the point where they were starting to wrap up their studio career with obviously tonight's album, LA Woman being their final.
1: I mean, Stone certainly capitalized on the, the chaotic side of the band, and that's obviously there. But there is also this peaceful, creative side to this band. If you actually research the band, they went through some tremendously fun phases, you know, where everyone was getting along and and Jim was a little clearer than maybe usual. But yeah, so the movie taps into more of the, the darker side and some of those things. And it produces tremendous imagery within the movie. Val Kilmore's portrayal of Jim Morrison is scarily.
0: Oh my accurate. god. Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Remember you know the scene where he's replicating that famous photo shoot where yeah, he's shirtless. I think it ended up being the front cover of the Best of the Doors set. Uh, it's a very famous photo shoot and like Val Kilmer looks so much like Jim Morrison. It's it's unbelievable. And you can see that he really tapped into the character in a very real way.
0: Well, it was fun to watch again. But but here's the thing, nubs. Here's the thing, buddy. We're not here to review the film. We are not Siskel and Ebert. We are Nubs and ToF, which means we are here tonight to review and discuss the Doors finale album, LA Woman. And I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a fun band to talk about. I know that we've got some wonder stories, I believe, to offer, but first and foremost, Let's go around and around. Nubs, what LPs are you listening to, buddy?
1: It's been a a tasty week of uh, good tunes. Uh, First would be Electric Light Orchestra's El Dorado. That mm, was, yes. was an album that you fancy from good old ELO.
0: You know, I, I was uh, making a list of kind of future episode possibilities, and I won't confirm or deny the possibility that the record you just mentioned may have at least ended up on that list.
1: Not a confirmation nor a denial. ELO is a, a very fascinating band. Lot of good. A lot of eh, but El Dorado creatively is one of those high points for yellow. So always enjoy revisiting that from time to time. One of Phil Collins' more recent studio works is a, a piece called Going Back, which is where he recorded this endless amount of Motown songs. So it's a covers album. And Phil recorded this all on his own. I think he plays every instrument on it. And I scored a copy of it where it comes in the format of 15 seven-inch vinyls. So it takes all of the songs that he recorded and puts them on individual seven inches, which is kind of a cool format. And then lastly would be uh, the, an album called The Myths and Legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table." And just hearing that should bring up visions of progressive rock, and it should bring up visions of Rick Wakeman, the keyboardist from Yes, who recorded that as a solo album. And it's basically Rick Wakeman just showing off for like, you know, an hour on keyboards with, you know, a whole kind of orchestra with him and the whole completely blown out, ridiculous production. But still a, a fun album to get into, as most of Wakeman's early solo albums were. So that's what's been round and round for me, T. What is round and round for you?
0: Three things. The first is... Um... This is a group from the, I suppose they're from the 80s and early 90s uh, and have even put out some new music of late after some long breaks and some work with some other side projects. But this is Front 242, the heavy industrial, um, they called it electronic body music, which was this genre of aggressive industrial techno dance music, which, which is really interesting and was a little bit of an offshoot to, to, to what would eventually become industrial metal, but kind of very aggressive and hard hitting and good stuff. This band is from Belgium and this is their album Front by Front, which had probably one of their most well-known songs on it called Headhunter, which was a hit in the clubs and, uh, and sort of introduced a lot of this more aggressive style to a lot of the, uh, the club goers in the UK at the time. So Front 242, an interesting, I believe they were a duo, maybe three guys.
1: I have to admit, I've never heard of electronic body music. I've heard of EDM, electronic dance music, but that's not Front 242. I always thought they were just industrial. That's kind of what I always categorized them as.
0: They pretty much are, but there is definitely, they they were trying to get songs into the clubs. And, and EBM, apparently, it was even you know, it was even abbreviated, was also sort of called industrial dance music in Germany and in Belgium and in the UK and some of these other areas. Maybe one night you and I can,
1: uh, you know, go out
0: and do some dancing. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, we're we're great at dancing, you know. I know. (laughs) We're we're very busy dancers. Yeah, I mean, I know it's something that we both are really, really talented at. But anyway, interesting band, Uh, interesting, you know, group, interesting sound. The second is... um, One of my favorite projects, uh, Self, which was uh, a guy named uh, Matt Mahaffey. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. Basically, this is basically a solo project, but he also does a lot of producing and a lot of songwriting and that sort of thing. But it's an interesting catalog all through the 90s and early 2000s um, that Matt has put together. And this was an album that was supposed to come out in the early 2000s and then got delayed forever, then finally just got reissued like a couple of years ago. Or I guess it's, I should say issued a couple of years ago called uh, Ornament and Crime. It's really good. You know, I, I think Self's work is very interesting. It, it covers a lot of different spectrums and genres and sounds. And uh, Ornament and Crime is worth checking out. And then the third is um, a favorite band, Widespread Panic, and their album, Every Day which is certainly one of their best studio albums. I mean, a lot of fan favorites on here with Please and Hatfield and Diner and Pilgrims, you know.
1: You had me at Pilgrims too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a good collection of a lot of things that they're still playing to this day and that if you go to a a uh, widespread panic show, you're going to be pleased to hear. So every day, a a nice studio record from those guys. And, you know, you like you and I've talked about a bunch before. It's always nice with these jam bands to kind of listen to their studio work. You know, it kind of gives you a a different idea. I mean, obviously their live stuff is great and it captures a lot of the energy and a lot of these type of bands are known for their live shows, but you know, they widespread panic put out a couple of, uh, of albums, Till the Medicine Takes was another one in the early 2000s that were really, really good recordings. So it's, it's nice to kind of check out, you know, whether it's, you know, Fish or Humphreys McGee or some of these other great bands. Checking out their studio work from time to time is kind of nice. I think there have been probably a bunch of albums, certainly a couple come to mind, that are really enjoyable to me from the standpoint of sometimes you have bands that have been doing it for a long time and things either start to get stale or they start to kind of settle into a, to a specific sound or a specific expectation or, you know, bands after time, of course, as we've seen time and time again, get into uh, disagreements or periods of turmoil or periods where things get pretty siloed, you know, where it starts to sound more like solo albums than it does a collective effort from a band and, and there are recordings where you can kind of sense that you can sense that things were segmented or that the band wasn't having a good time anymore or, you know, whatever it might be. And oftentimes you see these kind of resurgent albums where bands kind of say, you know what, let's get into the studio and let's just have some damn fun and, you know, look no further than the Beatles. The White Album's amazing, but it was extreme. It was like four solo albums, you know, on a double disc. And Let It Be, I mean, you listen to that, and it's like you can hear the band crumbling throughout the recording. But then came Abbey Road, which was sort of getting in the studio and just having a good time again after a period of a lot of difficulty and a lot of complication. That is La Woman, uh, you know, to me.
1: It'd be super cliche to put this album in the category of you can hear the band breaking up on it. You actually can't. You hear the band kind of coming back together again. You know, if you want to hear this band break up, I would check out Morrison Hotel, you know, or maybe the Soft Parade, but but probably Morrison Hotel. It's a disjointed, unfocused effort where it sounds like nobody was having fun and everyone was completely off their rocker. L.A. Woman is just like you said it. It's the group kind of coming back together and saying, let's just kind of do what we do. It's a, it's a very fun album to listen to, which in the Doors catalog is not always the case. And uh, it'll be fun to get into some of the, the specific aspects of it.
0: Well, hey, good man. Why don't we go ahead and do that as we get into those uh, nerdy deeds, which let me just check real quick. Oh, yeah, they are dunder cheap. They're still dunder cheap. So why don't we go ahead and get into those, baby?
1: You want some dirty deeds? Yeah.
0: L.A. Woman was released on April 19th, 1971. It was recorded at the Doors Home Studio. I believe they called it the workshop. Fittingly, in Los Angeles. I mean, how are you going to record L.A. Woman in a different city? That would just be ridiculous.
1: It would have been very ironic if this was recorded in, you know,
0: New Hampshire. Minneapolis, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Certainly one of the defining points of L.A. Woman is it was the band's sixth studio album and the first without Paul A. Rothschild as the producer. That's important because Paul A. Rothschild was sort of the George Martin of the Doors in that he was there for every single record prior to this. And really kind of took shape, for better or for worse, of the band's studio sound throughout their entire career up until this point. And part of this idea of the band just wanting to have a good time again, strip things down, get back to basics. And I think that's where you get a lot of the blues rock vibe of of this record. They had Bruce Botnick, you know, assisting on production, but it was pretty clear at this point that the band was really interested in kind of formulating, you know, their own sound. He was the assistant engineer on Let It Bleed by The Stones. Um, He recorded Any Muddy's first album. He did some work uh, with Kenny Loggins. He did some work with The Beach Boys. I mean, he knew what he was doing, but you can tell that in kind of making the decision to go a different direction than Paul Rothschild, that the band really wanted this to be different. They really wanted this to vibe differently, sound differently, and really showcase, I think, a more raw sound than they previously had. I think that's kind of what LA Woman defines.
1: You know, not only is it their sixth album, it's their sixth album in four years, yeah that they were able to get out in such a short amount of time, you know the the debut album came out in nineteen sixty seven I mean so the the whole doors lifespan is is extremely short, like most bands during this time they went through a lot of different experiences, but this was sort of the liberation from paul rothschild you you made the comparison to George Martin. it might be even more like the colonel with Elvis, you know just a lot of a lot of control, a lot of say in what the band did, and at this point mm-hmm. they're like, hey we've achieved a lot of success. We know what we're doing. And Bruce Botnick was a good pairing for them because he basically served as engineer, maybe a little bit of production responsibilities, but for the most part, this album is produced by the members of The Doors.
0: Yeah, good point. And I think this comparison to The Beatles you know, toward the end is very direct in that Morrison Hotel may have been kind of like the Let It Be, not even close to as good of an album, of course, but where things got a little dreary and got very separated. And LA woman is definitely to me is like the Abbey road rock and kind of getting back to basics. You can hear the band having a good time on this album. And I think that's part of what makes it such a good listen, but I think it's super comparable to Abbey road in that way. One of the other elements that's interesting is it was the first time in two albums where they went back to, and this is sort of that idea again of camaraderie and of togetherness, crediting all music to the doors because on Morrison Hotel, many of those songs were written by Jim with some contributions from the others. And on the soft parade, you had Krieger writing a lot of material and in a couple of really, really well-known songs, um, all by himself, But on L.A. Women, they got back to, you know, with the exception of the cover song, they got back to all music by The Doors. I think you can tell a lot about a band by sometimes how they credit songwriting and what they're sort of in it for and a little bit about their process of how they compose. L.A. Women sure seems like four guys that got in a room and just started banging stuff out, probably like they did from the very beginning.
1: I think that's even more significant, and I agree with uh, the idea of you really can take a lot from a band on how they do their credits. Because remember, how they do their credits is more of a business decision than a creative decision. It, It gets into royalties and who gets what and things like that. They kept it real tight amongst the four of them, yet they had this openness to bringing in a bass player, which the band really needed. I mean, the band needed a bass player from the beginning of the band, you know, I mean, Ray Manzarek, who I adore as a musician, and we'll get into a lot of Ray love here. Uh, he covered the bass parts with his hands, but it wasn't the same.
0: Yeah. And great point on, I think one of the really important parts of the nerdy deets on this one is the inclusion of Jerry chef. I don't know if you remember this a few episodes ago, I think I put Elvis live at Madison square garden on around and around. Yeah, place. you did. Yeah. And I remember we talked for a minute about how great his bands were. There was tightness. I mean, it's not terribly surprising that Elvis Presley got great musicians, but, you know, revisiting some of that live work is always fascinating, really from the standpoint of rhythm section. You know, he always had great drummers and Jerry Sheff was, I mean, he was his bass player throughout most of his live career, you know, certainly down the stretch until the end uh, when his bands were just really, really tight and really, really strong. And he and Densmore lock in really nicely, you know, in so many different parts of this album. So I think bringing on Jerry Sheff is a big part of this. The band was going through (laughs) a tremendous amount of turmoil and trouble uh, leading up to this recording. You know, highlighted it probably more notably than anything else by the, the old Miami incident where uh, they, were play, they were playing a live show um, on uh, March the 1st in uh, 1969. Eh, this is up for a little bit of debate. You know, I don't think anybody really knows what happened, but, uh, you know, Jim Morrison was accused of uh, bringing out his manhood. Uh, on stage, and of course he was completely just shit faced out of his mind and his mode at this time was pointing out the absurdity of performance and of their concerts and of people shouting out for the hits, and all these things that Jim, just like any other artist who then becomes a teen idol, starts getting into this idea of, boy, this is all really stupid uh rather than enjoying it and embracing it i don't think Jim ever really wanted this sort of adoration so you know i mean all these things put together made for a really you know sort of a dramatic situation he was arrested you know he had to spend several months in trial for this incident i mean it was something that was very disruptive to the band and i think it led all of this stuff i think led to this need to just kind of get back on the same page and utilize their next recording to really just get them back aligned and back enjoying things again. Because Jim wasn't enjoying necessarily the the way the band had become a gimmick in his mind, and in something that you know had become more about commercialism and more about him being on the cover of magazines than it was about these guys being artists and musicians. And they were. I mean, they were. <laughs> All four of these guys were real artists and they really dedicated themselves to their craft and they were good. They were all really good. And we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit more, certainly. And I think one of the you know, great things that we'll touch on as we go track by track and as we kind of assess this record is just that effort to really get back aligned and get back moving forward with what the band always saw themselves as what they were wanting to do.
1: You know, here's why 2020 just sucks so bad compared to 1970. And it's much more than just the pandemic, right? Because we all know, you know 2020 sucks because of that.
0: <laughs> We're almost done. How, how happy will people be on New Year's Eve? This Just, to, <laughs> yeah. just if nothing else, just symbolically and, and, and cosmetically to just have a different year than 2020. Yeah, I, I think everyone's like, going to be pumped.
1: <laughs> turn the page. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. We've lost all the mystery In music, if you think about it. Because in 2020, if Jim Morrison would have done this on stage, whatever he did, there would have been like, you know, 5,000 phones taken out and there would have been videos of it and splashed on YouTube and everyone would see it like vividly, right? Like everybody would know exactly what happened. Part of the allure of these stories, and whether it's coming from the doors or, you know, we've mentioned the Beatles a few times and Stones all these kind of urban legends that came from these bands that all contributes to to the brand of that band and the 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 mystery and the history of that particular group yeah. and this Miami incident is a huge part of the doors but part of why is because nobody really knows what happened there's all these differing accounts because you know, everyone didn't have access to record everything and capture
0: everything and get the scoop, you know, so they could. This is back when people would actually listen at concerts rather than hold their phones up. Yeah,
1: (laughs) exactly. And like, we lost that whole element of kind of mystery and, and skepticism and things about these, these events that nowadays, just everything is just so out there, you know, and that's something we need to embrace. You know, the fact that we don't really know what happened and that's cool. That makes it cool. But yeah, certainly, you know, the controversy goes hand in hand with the doors and you and I've had this conversation a lot during our musical lives. Cause the doors has always been a kind of a controversial band for you. And I will get to this in the wonder stories, you know, you got to separate the drama from the music. And when you just yeah. focus on the music, there's a lot of highs and there's a lot of lows But L.A. Woman holds a really important place as a musical high, an undisputed musical high. There's movies made about this album because of its significance.
0: Yeah, great point. And and these guys are just a perfect case study in exactly what you're saying. Two really quick things as we wrap up the deets here. I thought it was interesting that Jim recorded, Jim's vocals are a big part of this. I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time on it. He recorded the vocals in the bathroom doorway at this Doors workshop because they had used every other room for the mixing equipment and and all the different other, you know, monitors and mics and keyboards and all those things that they needed. So if you can imagine Jim, and he was kind of fat at this time and had the big beard going. And, you know, if you can imagine him sitting in the uh, bathroom entryway just busting out these vocals, which are so raw and so stripped down. Um, that's pretty cool, you know? <laughs> and then the other thing is, uh, is really interesting. You know, Jim proclaimed their final day of recording, which was the final day the, the Doors were ever in the studio, as Blues Day. And uh, there were three songs that were recorded uh, in that session, including the final song of of that session which was the title track again that that's just a sign that they were having a good time in the studio you know they just they you know jim loved the blues jim loved elvis and bringing in jerry chef and there were just so many things about the process of this album that when you to your point when you study the band musically there are just a lot of very cool things that went into this from a process standpoint and i sure think that it led to something that is a really, really intriguing lesson. Why don't we uh, get to the old wonder stories here? I know this is going to be a lot of fun. So here we go. All right, Nubs, take it away. What is your wonder story with this? This band that certainly has been a long time coming as far as learning about, figuring out, and developing an appreciation for the doors. What's your wonder story?
1: It all starts with being a kid that grew up in the 90s. You know, uh, you and I were born in 1980, so we're 80s kids in one sense, but the real heart of our musical upbringing took place in the 1990s. There was a strong, strong connection between the nineties and the doors. And I think it comes from a lot of different areas. You know, the the Oliver Stone film, if you can believe it, was made in nineteen ninety-one. And the reason I say that is that the, the movie's almost thirty years old, which I can't believe, you know? And that kicked off this kind of doors resurgence. And I think it was the Nirvana grunge thing, the connections between Kirk Cobain as a, a figure and Jim Morrison as a figure that did lend this real strong connection. So there was, a, there was a good nostalgia period for the Doors in the 90s where they had this resurgence. And classic rock radio certainly helped. And when you're 11 years old, 12 years old, and you're growing up in 1992, that first Doors album sounds really, really good. You know, it's rebellious. Yeah. It's challenging. It's also very melodic and, and just kind of fun.
0: Until you get to the end.
1: That's, yeah, that's yeah, not as fun. But it's not as fun. But 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, and 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 I was just gonna say because you make a good point about the end. That first Doors album has something for everybody. Oh yeah. You know, if you kind of like light poppy stuff, it's got light my fire. If you like things that are challenging and brave and determined, you know, it's got break on through the to the other side. And if you're you know into things that are trippy and mystic and and take you to a place that you've never been the end certainly achieves that, you know, and there's other great album tracks on it too. So that first doors album is something that, you know, when you're growing up is, is, is going to resonate. I'm not sure it will for, you know, the, the now generation, I'm not sure if it'll have that connection, but it certainly did for us in the nineties. And then the band became very controversial for me, you know, some things from the doors I, I really, really enjoy and like, and, and have lasted. And then there's some aspects of the doors that I can't stand. One of them is just the idea of Jim Morrison as the poet, you know, because I'm not that interested <laughs> in what he has to say about the world. I'm really not. I'm very interested in his ability to front this band and, and certainly an LA woman to be a, an exceptional vocalist because what really comes through on this album is just Jim Morrison, the vocalist, but all this business about him, you know, being such an important, you know, commentator, I'm, I'm really not into. But if you just look at The Doors as a band, there's some quality stuff. I've gotten more into the soft parade. Uh, Waiting for the Sun is a a great follow-up to the debut. You know, it has some things on it that are really memorable and things that stick with you once you hear it. So, you know, it kind of went hand-in-hand with our musical upbringing, but it doesn't mean I love everything they did. In fact, I don't love most things they did, which makes this episode, you know, an important one for us to do because it's an album that... Comes from a band that you and I agree on for its inconsistency, but an album that you and I both agree on for its just fantastic appeal. See,
0: what's your wonder story with The Doors? Well, I am shocked. I am absolutely shocked by your wonder story. I, you know, I usually can kind of predict at least a few key topics that you're going to cover, and maybe you're going to claim that you did this intentionally. But I can't believe. You gave your Wonder Story and didn't mention Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, France. Now, was that a miss or did no. you? Oh, so no. Oh, so you're claiming that you're, you're giving me a dime. You're giving me an assist here by letting me tell the Père Lachaise story. Is, is that right?
1: I've stolen like five things from you during Wonder Stories. And, and I recognize this. And, and I always
0: find myself okay. saying, okay.
1: I wish T would tell this story instead of me <laughs> because you'd tell it much better you know? so you're being generous. You swear? Yes. Absolutely. You swear? Yes. Okay. All yes.
0: right. Well, okay. Well, what I'm referring to is per Chasse is a uh, cemetery, you know, just outside of sort of the main drag of Paris, France. It's a minor hike to get to, but we must've been 12.
1: It was the 13th. It
0: was the week
1: that Kirk Cobain died.
0: Okay. So we, we were 14.
1: We, we landed in Detroit. We got off the plane. We got home, turned on MTV to the news that Kurt
0: Cobain had killed himself. That's right. So that would make us 14 because that happened in 94. Correct. So our dad took us on a trip to um, Paris, which was great. And he had some business stuff to do. So we actually, throughout the days, we were able to get somebody to kind of, uh, take us around, you know, take us basically where we wanted to go. It's a different landmarks and different touristy sites and all that stuff, which of, of course there are just an abundance of those in Paris when it comes to, you know, the different museums and the different sightseeing and the different monuments and the different areas of the city. I mean, there's just an incredible amount of history there and an incredible amount of culture and You know, even at age 14, you know, you'd think that you'd want to check a lot of those things out. And once we figured out, you know, we basically had the ability to, you know, sort of tell this, it was basically like a driver that would kind of spend a few hours with us throughout the day, taking us to different places that we wanted to go see while our dad took care of his business stuff. Uh, Once we figured out that he would basically take us where we wanted to go. I kid you not. I think we were there for five days and every single day we wanted to see Jim Morrison's grave. And we saw it the first day and then we wanted to see it again the second day. And then we wanted to see it again the third day. And we went every single day. It was basically a joke by the end of the trip that, you know, this guy that was kind of helping us out was like, yeah, they, they wanted to go to the cemetery again, you know, and (laughs) there
1: were two things. It was that. And it was the Virgin Megastore on the Champs-Elysees. Yep. Was, if anyone remembers, the Virgin Megastore was like the
0: ultimate record store. Oh, it was heaven for us at that time.
1: And yeah. I, I swear T, we we spent 90% of the trip at Jim Morrison's grave. Yeah. And in the Virgin Megastore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think the rest of the time we were sleeping. I mean, it was, you know, there's the Louvre and there's, you know, it was all we wanted to do. Was, I mean, I, I think we went and saw the Mona Lisa and we were pissed off the whole time because we'd rather be at the gravesite or at the Virgin Megastore. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, you know, we, we were just annoyed that we, you know, were wasting time seeing this, probably the most famous piece of art in human history because we wanted to go look at CDs. You know, that was definitely part of the wondrous story for us. And, and you know, what was interesting is we weren't huge Doors fans. You know, we weren't Jim Morrison, you know, idol worshipers, but there was something about. And it's very for those of you that have actually that have been there, it's really interesting. There are there's spray paint and signs all over, and there are actually some other very famous people, composers and artists and things that that are buried at Pearless But there are all these like markings and basically graffiti pointing you to where Jim is. So there's like Jim and then an arrow, you know. I know they made some efforts to, to clean it up over the years, but my understanding is whenever they clean it up, people just, you know, do it again anyway. So I think anytime you go there, there's an element of this, but there was just something about that whole, I don't know, that whole rock and roll thing. Although we didn't like love him, we, we knew that there was something very important about where he died and how he died and where he was buried. And we just, I don't know, we felt it. We just, there was something about it that we just wanted to go to every day. So it's kind of weird. I mean, now that we're, you know, older and wiser, you kind of look back and it's kind of hilarious and kind of odd that we wanted to go there every day, but we did, we did. And, uh, you know, I always think of that whenever I think of the doors. And then to your point about, kind of listening to this band at that time, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was absorbing Doors albums. It took years. I mean, it's, it, I would say it was even fairly recent because everybody, you know, when we were in the 90s, and I think you're right about the Doors kind of becoming this important throwback in a lot of ways, everybody had that greatest hits. I think it was called The Best of the Doors, double CD you know, which was the one, the photo shoot that you mentioned earlier has that famous picture of Jim on the cover. It's that red and white piece. Everybody had that. So I think most people certainly was the case for me was listening to their singles and their famous songs and sort of leaving it there. And I didn't love the band. You know, I thought they were kind of okay. You know, they had some, some good tracks, but I didn't really understand them. I didn't really get it even after the movie and even after all those things that bring some of that to context, I didn't really get or understand or take the time to understand the band musically until fairly recently. And I got to tell you, I really love this band. I mean, mean, when you dig in to your point about the debut album and you see kind of how they evolved over time and some of the different sounds that they were able to uh, accomplish and, this fusion of a lot of jazz and a lot of blues and a lot of heavy rock and roll, you know, they were able, they were a very, very unique band. There's been nothing like the door since musically. And a lot of that comes obviously from Manzarek and the way he was able to play and able to contribute. Not a big composer. If you really look back, he didn't really get a lot of hardly any songwriting credits, you know, for this band, but the way he was able to apply, melody and effect all while keeping that famous you know backbeat with his left hand was always super important to this band's sound so and then of course Densmore is just an awesome drummer you know jazz player who could also play really hard and heavy great fills you know you start to piece all this together and you realize that you know this wasn't just getting all sort of down the rabbit hole into Jim Morrison's world when you explore the doors these are really good artists and musicians that didn't always get it right i mean they had plenty of clunkers just like any other band that you know has longevity and importance but produced a lot of really unique interesting sounds and it's a fun band if you're if you put jim's drama aside and you just approach these guys musically and you want to revisit and study their work and their approach over time. It's a very, very fun band to revisit. All right. Well, why don't we get into it here and, uh, let's get into the track by track of LA woman by the doors. Let's get into it as we drop the needle here. All right. As the doors often did, you know, we kind of start off and I always think they were great about, they kind of always knew how to start things off and they really come out pretty hot here and letting you know that this is going to be, you know, a funk blues instrumentation driven, uh, deal here. And you hear that, that walking bass right away, and Jim's vocal set the tone right away with this track opener, The Changeling. Just kind of coming at you here. Uh, <laughs> with You know, just a great organ part. You know, Jerry's crushing it on the bass, and uh, you know we didn't get into Jim's main vocal line there, but we certainly get a little, little Jim there right from the onset.
1: Are you kidding? It's one of the great vocal entrances I've ever heard. I mean, let's (laughs) let's, just give me, give me a little bit of the changeling here. Let me just let's see if I could kind of replicate this. What do we got here?
0: Oh, you're gonna do, you're gonna do, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Let's just check out this vocal entrance. What do you got?
0: Uh, So let me see here. You want, you want a little. A little changeling background. All right, let's get yeah, it. Yeah, right. yeah. It's just, you know. All right, here you go. Okay, here we go. Ooh. <laughs> 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 wait a minute. I, I think you're way late on that. Oh, I was, I, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> again. it wait, wait a minute. Let's do the real thing. I think he, he goes. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Because
1: Ray's keyboard comes in. Yeah, you're right. It was way late, way late.
0: There's the ooh. There's the Yeah, okay. All right, let's run it back. You want to give it another go? <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, what the hell are you waiting for? Let's go, Jim. You know?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Ooh! Ooh! <laughs> 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 well well there's a there's a bit of a delay, but i think you're i think you're getting it right i think you're getting it right
1: i love it i love that that's the first thing you hear from jim <laughs> what
0: do you what do you think of this opener nub
1: oh i i i am in love with the changeling it, this is this is where I'm kind of all in on l a woman yeah I, I do love that. At this time, you know, Jim has been this like sex symbol, right? Like he, think about just the sex appeal that Jim had during those prime years of the doors, you know, the curly hair and he seemed to never wear a
0: shirt and, you know, he's got the belt and the whole thing going. An unbelievably handsome person. I mean, my goodness. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. You, even see, you see clips of him now. I mean, this is 40 freaking years ago and it's like, geez, that, that dude probably didn't have trouble getting a date.
1: Exactly, but in the first few seconds of this song, he's just undoing the whole thing. He's ooh, I <laughs> yeah, <know>, like right, <laughs> and I love that. I love somebody who becomes famous and hates it, you know, and wants to tell the world how much they hate it, and that that's not really who they are. But more than anything, you know, I, I musically, this song is is very strong from the start, and you nailed it. The baseline, you know, you've got Elvis Presley's bass player in there just crushing it and laying down a great foundation for Krieger. Raymond Zarek is just, he's the band to me. You know, we always refer to LA woman as the band's last album. It's actually not the doors made two albums after LA woman with Ray on lead vocals. And I love those records. Yeah. They're great. Other voices. And I think the other one's called full circle. Yeah. And I, and I own those records and I love them. I mean, it's the doors, it's the doors with, with Ray kind of just, you know, taking over the lead vocals.
0: I think you make a very good point about Jim kind of letting himself go. You know, granted there was a lot of substance abuse and and granted, you know, this was not a guy who was hitting the gym very often and and you know, didn't eat a lot of health food. Yeah, I don't I don't think he was protecting the temple too much as they say, but there there's something endearing and lovable about Basically, just saying, you know what? I want to just kind of get fat and move to Paris and play music and howl the blues. You know, <laughs> people get so into this wanting to be worshiped and wanting to be adored, particularly those that get into rock and roll and particularly those that become front men. Jim Morrison was not a typical front man who loved being at the forefront. He was never comfortable with it. I mean, early on, he could hardly face the crowd. He used to sing with his back to the crowd. And I think by the time this album came around, not just the physical appearance, but to your point, the physical inertia of his vocals, I think was basically saying, I'm raw. I'm here to sing the blues. I'm here to give you all I got from a feeling standpoint. I'm not here to dance around and shake it around for you and have you scream and molest me on stage from the front row and all those things that tended to happen, you know, in Jim's sort of quote unquote younger days, you know, this is him just kind of saying, I don't need you to love me and adore me anymore. I just want to be a musician and I just want to get my lyrics and my poetry and my, you know, sort of overall message out there. And I want to do it with my bandmates like the good old days, you know, and I think that that's something that's just so cool about the, the the feeling you get right away as this album kicks out. One of the great things about this song is the end, they bring in that gospel beat, you know, and Densmore really picks things up and takes it, you know, double time. And it's a really nice way to ride the song out because it's this blues funk thing. But then, you know, during the last minute, they pick up the tempo and give you that sort of uptempo gospel beat vibe to it and i think it's a really cool way to end the song that takes you into and i think you know you make a great point too about blues and about how 12 bar blues can get pretty stale but part of what this album brings to the table is just a lot of really modern at the time takes on the blues that certainly happens here with love her madly don't you love- I just really feel kind of a very modern up-tempo kind of take on, on a blues song and a blues progression here. What do you think of it?
1: It's always been one of my least favorite of the commercial songs by the band. I think it lacks feel. I do like the little George Harrison guitar work that Robbie Krieger is doing, especially in that post-chorus bit. I think it's really clever. And, And Krieger is very clever guitarist, but, uh, yeah the, the, I like its spot on the album, and i I like it as an album track i don't like it as a hit. I was always more of a I, I compare this song to touch me a little bit i'm more of a touch me fan I would say than love her madly so i i you know as a hit, I put this definitely near the bottom of the band's catalog, but I do like its place in the album. I like the way it builds off of the changeling
0: what do you what do you think of it I think it's pretty good robbie Krieger you know contributed kind of most of the composition of this so to your point and there are some cool kind of picking guitar parts there especially toward the end Robbie Krieger also he was the primary writer of the song you mentioned touch me and you know now that you mentioned that one I mean I think you know we already went to the we already went to the well once on um doing our best gym but uh it's actually one of my favorite parts in the movie when <laughs> when they're recording touch me in the studio and jim's just completely he's just, yeah, just wasted and he's like he's slurring and I, I i always think that that part's so funny because it's kind of a goofy song but uh
1: a karaoke favorite of mine i will tell you that i've done touch me uh many times at the karaoke
0: stadium well, i was just thinking uh you, you know how do you feel about giving it a go
1: me, babe. Can't you see that I am not afraid? What was that promise that you made? Yeah. What was that promise that you made? Yeah. Thank you.
0: Now, would they they kick you out of the bar at this point, or did they... Call the police, or I mean, what 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 was generally the response to this performance? Kick
1: kick me out. Generally, I'd look down. I'd have you know five Jack dangles shots purchased for me. Maybe that was just to get me off the stage. I don't know. Could have
0: been. uh, It could
1: have been to always brought it strong. Uh, Karaoke nights would touch me. All right, you got it. Let's hear you. Let's hear you. Yeah. All right.
0: Come on, come on, come on, come on. Now touch me, baby. Can't you see that I am not afraid? What was that promise that you made? What was that promise that you still? What was that promise that you made? Now here we go. Yeah,
1: you kind of nailed the croon. I, I, you, you nailed the,
0: the, gym, the gym croon there. That was, that was pretty good. That felt good. I mean, it we'll should
1: see. have. It should
0: have felt good. I mean, I you know, I feel a little less stressed right now. I feel like I kind of... Released some demons there, some energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, just like what we just displayed, um, Jim had the ability to just kind of take control of a track. And uh, I think he did so on here on track three with Been Down So Long. Will I Been Down So Long? Obviously one that defines this uh, is uh, eventually you get into a lot of slide guitar work and uh, I'm not sure if that was Krieger or if that was the musician that they brought in to kind of help bulk up some of the guitar sounds. But some, it's actually some really nice slide that goes on over this one. But, you know, Jim, Jim just coming out of the gate just hard on this one, you know. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's a pretty stripped down, you know, blues song, but, you know, pretty upbeat. I, this is one its pretty rare within the Doors catalog that you hear Ray kind of be that understated and that much sort of in the background. This is a pretty straightforward bass drum guitar type of an approach. So, you know, unique in that way, but really stripped down and straightforward blue stuff.
1: Solid track three. I think you touched on something important. I I do believe that Robbie and John in particular did get frustrated sometimes with Ray. I've read a few things where, Mm. you know, kind of Ray's busyness and and the way that Ray would just, I mean, never stop playing, you know.
0: I've also seen that they, um, John in particular, used to say that, Ray just had a really hard time not speeding up yes you could hear that a lot in their live stuff that you know Ray I mean Ray incredible player and goodness to have a brain to be able to do that many things at the same time that he's doing but probably not the best uh you know timekeeper um, which is what made Densmore's role even even more important
1: Ray was always like in his own little world, you know, even his stage presence, he was looking down. You could just tell he was really focused on what he was doing. I think sometimes he forgot to like, you know, play with his drummer, which is fairly important, right? If you're going to keep a cohesive rock band together.
0: Of all all the guys, I think John was the most appreciative of having Jerry in the studio. You mentioned that Jerry is just a classic in the pocket player and The fact that he was able to kind of lock in in that way. And listen, John Densmore is a great drummer, jazz background. He could hit hard, but a lot of feel and a lot of rhythm, you know, to his playing. And and he was a real, you know, just like the rest of them. He was a real, I think, student of the game to play with a pretty prestigious bass player like Jerry and have the ability to lock in with him. I know that he had mentioned that was something he really appreciated during this process. All right, more blues on the way. Let's get to Cars Hiss by My Window. Windows with a sonic boom. now this obviously gets a little you know 12 bar basic Windows for me um, but i think that densmore's kind of shuffle groove here is nice and obviously i think one of the sort of pinnacles of the song is it's actually Jim at the end. At first I thought it was a wah guitar, but it's Jim through a vocal effect kind of mimicking a wah guitar solo with that real kind of falsetto-y type voice. And you'd never really heard him do that before. It's really interesting. You know, it's almost kind of like if Jim could play guitar, that's the kind of solo that he would want to, uh, you know, layer onto to the ending of this song. So, I mean, there's some kind of cool elements, but this is where it gets a little draggy for me as far as just really basic stripped down, almost too stripped down on this one, uh, blues. But I suppose it sets up the next track a little bit.
1: Yeah, this is a next for me. This represents everything I can't stand about blues music. It's formula based. It has to sound a certain way. It has to have that rhythm and that. You know melody and those notes, and Mm -hmm. it's the same reason I hate country music because it has to sound a certain way for the most part in order to be country. Well, same with blues, and so yeah, you know, dufferoo for me on this one. uh, To me, it's just an avenue to get to uh, probably the high point of the band's career, which is
0: track four. Well, let's get to it. Jim's breakup letter to Los Angeles, L.A. woman. Well, this is a really uh this is a pretty important song this this is uh this has a really interesting structure to it. It's structured really in three parts. um it is not verse, course, verse. It's almost a uh bit of a trilogy musically, and that was really the first part. you know, we'll carve out the three parts, but that was really the first part, which is this sort of call and answer between Jim and Krieger, really good progressions where you know Jim's singing city of night. And just everything is working on this song. Everybody is playing parts that have very memorable contribution. That unmistakable bass pulse is just so good. And that's just just Jerry just doing it uh, once again. But the guitar licks, the piano melody... Well, part of the theme of this album, and it really starts with the changeling and it hits its stride from a storytelling standpoint here on LA Woman, is this album's really about Jim's not just desire, but what he was in the process of doing at this time, which was leaving LA. Part of, I think, him saying, Boy, I've kind of used this life up for all it's worth as far as being out here. You know, from somebody, I mean, me personally, LA is not a city I'd ever choose to live in. And it seems like most people that spend extended time there end up with a more complicated relationship with the city than anything else. And I think that Jim's sort of exploration of that lyrically here is really cool and interesting. It really is like a breakup letter that he's writing to this city that he spent so much time in that this band had such a connection to. And there are lyrical moments here. I mean, you and I aren't terribly into lyrics, you know, cops and cars, topless bars, never seen a woman. So alone is just great stuff. I mean, are you a lucky little lady city of lights or another lost angel city of night? I know that Jim's whole poet thing gets a little annoying at times, but boy, you know, there's, (laughs) there's some pretty cool stuff that he's taking you through here, uh, especially throughout that part one.
1: Yeah, it's their version of kind of a boogie and he's doing kind of his L.A. boogie on top of this, you know, really strong musical thing. It's just very complete. And and yeah, Ray's Honky Tonk Piano is a very cool addition. But again, you got Jim just on fire, you know, and when he hits those Completely. city at night lines and... It's almost like it, it's almost like the doors go prog in a way. It's like this whole thoughtfulness of yeah. how are we going to take these different sections and weave them in and out and, and create all of these very iconic images with the words.
0: I want to take you into section two a little bit, this Bossa Nova section here. And I love it on
1: your freeway. It's so
0: good. I love when the drums come in there. I mean, what a cool section. I mean, this is just bitching, you know. And and Jim's lyrics are awesome over this part. But you know, when those drums pick up, it's a real smart piece by Densmore. The way he's treating that sort of bossa nova type section, and then and then digging into it. it is a really cool interlude kind of section two of this piece. And then let's just give you a little taste of uh, part three here. I mean, you mentioned a little bit here with the Mojo rising.
1: Just classic,
0: you know, just classic. And it, it takes you sort of back into part one, you know, to wrap things up, but Yeah, it really is kind of an opus. I think it's a, you know, a multifaceted three-part song that avoids, you know, basic song structure and just really takes you on a ride. I mean, LA Woman, just freaking classic.
1: Easily the best thing I think the band ever did just musically. I mean, they wrote some great, you know, kind of pop songs and hits, but yeah, LA Woman just takes you on a journey. And I think that's probably what jim was looking for
0: it's an eight minute song that you just don't want to end you know and uh there aren't a lot like that so once that wraps up you get into side two here and you kick that off with the very interesting lamerica trippy you know a little different um you know you got kind of this marching thing going on with densmore and this very trippy thing going on from manzarek so i don't know you're coming off of la woman and uh you'd probably anticipate something that's a little bit unique and different and maybe a little on the darker side but uh i don't know interesting if nothing else
1: i love lamerica because it to me it's the band saying hey let's do something like the first album I mean, Mm -hmm. this sounds like an outtake from the first album or from Strange Days or Waiting for the Sun. I mean, it really has that kind of early on feel. You almost feel like it's the band playing live early on in their career when a bunch of people are kind of sitting around saying, what the hell is this? You know, so I dig it. I think it's
0: cool. Then we get kind of, you know, back into something a little bit more soulful and something that, you know, I hear is uh, something very contemporary with Hyacinth House.
1: I think that somebody's here. I'm sure that someone is following me. Oh yeah.
0: The thing I like about this and
1: why did you
0: throw know It wasn't necessarily intentional, but During Round and Round, one of my uh, picks was Widespread Panic. And this sounds exactly like something that a band like that would do today. You know, it, it sounds to me, you know, very modern, very contemporary. It's pretty soulful. But there are a lot of elements, whether it's the, you know, kind of organ work from Ray, which I think is very important to this one. that You know, there are a lot of kind of cool parts and cool layers that are sort of building up into this thing that's a little bit more soulful and a little bit more swirly, but uh, I kind of like it.
1: I really do like Ray's kind of bloops and bleeps that he's doing on this
0: one. The bleeps, the sweeps, and the creeps. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, Ray's kind of carrying it from that way. Another strong vocal from Jim. To me, the whole song builds towards a great climax, which is that I need a brand new friend Ending, And, you know, you you do hear some desperation from Jim here. I mean, while things are happy and while things are clearly going well with the band as they engage in this creative process, you do every once in a while just need kind of that yearning, desperate Jim. And that I need a brand new friend, the end uh, bit in the outro, I think is very, very strong.
0: It's a very acclaimed song, Uh, one that was for an album track quite studied by a lot of music critics and and a lot of kind of those that, you know, took a more studious approach to the doors. A lot of people think it is one of their best and not from the standpoint of it being bouncy or, or having commercial appeal, but they do make a lot of connections lyrically to your point between this and the end and kind of the similar, you know almost like a continuation of that story and of those feelings, a lot of the the lyrical approach from Jim is has to do, which is well documented in this Oliver Stone movie as well as in a lot of other accounts of the band of Jim's very unique tumultuous at times relationship with Pam and uh, a lot of the lyrical content of this one you know apparently refers to this, but song that I think still fits very nicely, certainly going in a Pretty dark direction lyrically, but you know, with this musical style that I think holds up, you know, rather nicely.
1: The other thing I think is cool that that does lend to the that kind of mystery of the album is the band's last with Jim. Ray based some of the music on a composition from Chopin, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that in Paris at the cemetery that we visited all those times, who is buried, you know, relatively close to Jim Morrison is frederick chopin
0: that's right
1: and so i th- i always thought that was kind of interesting that the probably the next most famous person in that uh, grave site is chopin and on the last doors album with jim in this very significant song ray uh references chopin so so it's, it's just kind of a neat coincidence sad coincidence but kind of neat
0: yeah that's interesting i didn't know that well the doors you know they dropped a uh cover song on their first album and And I think had a few throughout their catalog, but uh, this is a John Lee Hooker tune that the band from their earliest days, you know, back playing the clubs in L.A. and playing the Roxy and all those ways that they came up, uh, had this as kind of one of their standard homage numbers to John Lee Hooker in Crawling King Snake. nice modern take here and this is where you start to hear um and you get it a little bit on the next track but they started to put this reverby type elvis effect on jim's vocals and i think that's kind of part of what is a nice modern take on this john lee hooker tune so i hear something that obviously is paying homage to i would assume you know one of their favorite artists and also playing a song that took them way back to their early days of playing the clubs. And but it's kind of a nice take on a, on, on obviously a blues song that uh, they felt to be pretty important to them.
1: If you're going to cover pure blues, you know, John Lee Hooker's a good place to go. No doubt about it. And uh, it's got a great sound, you know, just overall the sound of this song is just very crisp. Jim's vocal sound—they—they they just did some really cool things. I do think some of it's recording at the bathroom, you know. And I, yeah, I mean that's a huge piece, but they played with some double tracking and some compression and some things that they were doing to his voice that just gave it a very important sound, just from a sonic perspective on this whole album, and it, it does come through here pretty well.
0: Well, it sure comes through on the next one as well. Uh, a very unique song, and more of kind of a spoken word type of an approach from. Jim, but with this cool effect that sort of uh, puts a nice twist on it here on the WASP, Texas Radio and the Big Beat. I
1: tell you about Texas Radio and the Big Beat. Soft driven, slow
0: and mad like some new language. You know, I, I don't usually get into this. Uh, I don't know, sort of theatrical spoken thing, but I think Jim pulls it off pretty nicely. Oh yeah, I, I yeah, think when it's Jim cool. It, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a cool track. And again, they're putting great effect on his voice. You know, so while he's not singing in the traditional form, there is still a vocal element to this. You know, story being told. You know, for kind of the second to last track, and particularly with the last one being a little bit more soft. You know, I think the WASP is a nice way to kind of get to the edge here of this record and closing things out.
1: Edge is a good word. You know, you can't—you just can't forget how experimental this band was. You know, these were guys that really pushed the limit, and they took chances. They—they they made musical experiments, and Jim, you know, had no—he uh, just wasn't self-conscious about trying different things. And I think that's one of the great things about any artist and you nailed it earlier. These guys are artists, you know, they're, they're doing things for the purpose of art, not for commercialism. You know, this song was never going to be a hit or anything like that, but it, it's it got a nice kind of story to it. It pays an interesting tribute to, you know, this, this kind of Texas radio thing. I I, I think it's a reference to the way that in Texas, you could pick up radio stations from Mexico. It was kind of like a, a bootleg radio sort of deal, I think is I think is the reference. But yeah, you know, there not a lot of people could get away with a spoken word thing. Jim can. It sounds cool. But it sounds cool mostly because what's going on musically underneath it as the musical bed is just really robust. You know, it's something that you can get behind. And if you're not really digging the spoken word thing, then you can really get into the groove of, of what's being laid down. And again, you just hear so much cohesion within the band at this moment. They're really on the same page.
0: The final song of The Doors' recording catalog, Riders on the Storm.
1: Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone.
0: I've always wondered, you know, typically on uh you know on on my episodes here, I I'm particularly interested in one or two particular songs on a given record on your thoughts and I don't know that we've ever talked about Riders on the Storm. What do you think of this one? Obviously it's a Doors classic, but as the closer of LA Woman, you know, what do you think of this track?
1: You know, obviously you have to respect what this song did for the atmosphere of rock music. Yeah. And this is 1971. And this is before any kind of space rock really became a thing. This is a very influential song on, on all elements of space rock or spacey rock music, creating atmosphere, even having that ambient kind of rain sound in the background is, was very innovative at the time. And I, I think what Dinsmore is doing on the drums is really cool. Um, just pacing the song with this open kind of drum beat, allowing for the other elements to come in and out. But this song to me is 100% Ray, and it really all gets into, I mean, when he hits that solo, like I'm all in. And it meanders a little bit to get you there. You know, it's not the, it's not the tightest thing in the world, and it's not the the most engaging first few minutes I've ever heard. But when Ray starts with that solo and he does that staircase down uh, on his keyboard, you're just, you're really bought in at that moment. It's very encapsulating.
0: Ray was an incredibly intelligent element of this band. And clearly his playing is remarkable. You know, the melody he was able to create, the bass lines and the, you know, sort of uh, bottom end nature that was really needed with not having a bass player, obviously, the approaches that he was able to capture as one guy really playing two different sets of keyboards, and this is before the days of, of Moogs and, you know, really intense synthesizers that you loop and a lot of, you know, playing over dat tracks and a lot of things that eventually made this job a lot easier for people. You know, this is Raymond Zarek having to cover so much of this himself. I love that. You know, there are a few people in rock music that I feel like I could just maybe watch play all day. And Raymond Zerich's one of those. I mean, I could just watch the guy swaying his head side to side. And, you know, to your point earlier, kind of looking kind of just down and focused on what he's doing, but a, a fascinating musician to watch. A true organist. You know, he says it in the introduction when they're getting off the airplane, you know, the the clip that we played here to intro the episode, you know, he says musician and organist and boy, is he right? You know, this is not um, a rock and roll keyboardist, or this is not, you know, somebody who kind of plays some background piano. Raymond Zarek's contribution to this band was extraordinary.
1: He is the true irreplaceable member of the Doors. Yeah. He really is, and, and I know that it's going to piss a lot of people off because everyone thinks Jim, 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 and I'm not talking about who's on the poster and who died at 28, so therefore is revered. I'm talking about who actually could not be taken out of that band, and if you did take them out of the band, they ain't the doors anymore. John Dinsmore, love him. Replaceable. Robbie Krieger, love him. Replaceable. Jim Morrison. I got to say, replaceable. You could find somebody else to perform those vocals and come up with the poetry and all that. I mean, you really could. And I'm not taking anything away from him as an icon, right? Rayman Zarek was irreplaceable in that band. I mean, you really could not find anybody to step in and do what he did the way he did it and have it still be the doors. He's a huge, huge part of their sound. And I know it didn't work out commercially after Jim left. And I think a lot of that just has to do with Jim's status and what he meant to people. But if you just look truly musically as a band, Ray was the guy you just really couldn't replace.
0: Yeah, agreed. And, and you know, with Riders on the Storm, it, it's pretty good. It, it certainly isn't top tier for me, but I definitely, you know, it's a door song that I always liked. I liked it more more recently when I realized that it was the closer to LA woman, right? Cause before that you hear it on the compilations and you just think that maybe it's this kind of, you know, groovy tune with the, you know, these storm elements and all this cool stuff. But when you really put it in the context of it being the last track from this band on their, you know, finale album, and you listen to the kind of build up to it as well, it's a very fitting way to not just wrap up LA woman, but to really wrap up the Doors recording career in its, you know, kind of somberness in a way in its experimentation. And you nailed it. The word I wrote down is atmosphere. You know, I mean, it's very rare, particularly back then before you were getting into a lot of sound effects and a lot of layering and a lot of, you know, sounds that are intended to artificially create atmosphere. These guys, granted they had the storm sounds, but they were able to do it in a tremendous way through instrumentation and in a way that most songs aren't able to reach as far as just pure atmosphere creation. And I really think Riders on the Storm is special in that way. All right. Well, that's a wrap on the record. Now, Nubs, uh, The Doors, L.A. Woman, did it matter in your view?
1: Yes. Yeah. L.A. Woman matters. It's the best Doors album. The first album, I see it, I get it, but it's got, you know, it's got the end on it, which is sort of a waste of time in my opinion. (laughs) You know, LA Woman is so thorough, so thoughtful, so complete. And like we've said, the band is, they're kind of doing what they do on this thing. You know, it's very pure. It's, it doesn't have a lot of the frills on it that, and a lot of the nonsense that some of the other albums had on it. So I think it matters because it, it is the last one with Jim Morrison and that's a factor. You know, it, it's LA Woman the song is the very last thing they recorded. So it has got a, a pretty unmatched legacy to it. And I think anybody should own this album and get into it. So so I'm a yes. What do you think, T, does LA Woman matter?
0: I, I certainly think so too. It's the band having fun again. It's the band rediscovering its roots. It's the band hunkering down in their workshop studio focusing on what they feel they were always there to do which is tell stories and produce great music and execute as artists la woman does that as well as any other doors effort for sure it's a really fun listen you know when you especially when you put it in the context of what the band was going through and what things were like in 1970 for this group. I mean, the fact that they were able to refocus and re-energize and execute is just a really, from a rock and roll standpoint, you know, kind of studying it and, and looking at it historically, it's a really fun listen. It's a really intriguing listen. And I think you know, pretty damn important in the grand scheme. The more you study and dig into the doors from a musical perspective, the more you like them, you know, and certainly as we hit on in the wonder stories, the more I've dug into this band really in the last 10 years, you know, it really didn't start until fairly recent bit of a late bloomer here on these guys. The more you really understand what they were going for, the more you understand their just tremendous talent, As artists. And when you listen to LA woman, the more you understand kind of where things were at there at the end. And I really like having the band revisit its roots and have a good time again. And I think that's the beauty of LA woman. So with that nubs, are you putting this one on the turntable? Are you putting it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or Oh, no. Oh, no. Is it going in the old for sale bin? What do you got, buddy?
1: In the collection for me, strong in the collection. It's not a feel good album in the sense that I'm taking it out constantly to listen to it top to bottom. And it's a little seasonal. You know, there's kind of a time and place for it. But when the time is right, you know, love listening to it. So it's firmly in the collection. Certainly not collecting dust, but not quite on the turntable for me. It just doesn't get that kind of consistency of top to bottom. Listen, a couple things on there you pass up. You know, the blues track in the first half is, is very throwaway for me. But, uh, but, you know, this is an album that should be in the collection for everybody. I don't want to tell people what to do or anything. Well, I mean, but, you know, that? buy this album. God's sakes,
0: you know. What was the old, uh, was it uh, Lampoon Magazine that said, buy this magazine or, or we'll shoot this dog? Yes. Yeah, is, that, yeah, is that National yeah. Lampoon Magazine? Yeah, I think so. I like is that what you're saying? it's you, what I'm saying. We're not going to shoot any dogs. That's um, what I'm
1: saying. Well, I, okay. I, I might shoot a dog if people okay. don't buy this album. That's how important it is to buy this album. <laughs> <laughs> All right, T- what, what's the final cut for you?
0: Listen, it's in the collection for me. And honest to God, every single thing you said is exactly my rationale as well for it being in the collection. I think you nailed it. I have nothing more to add. Let's go to what's in your head.
1: head, head.
0: Let's do it again. Nubs, what's in your head?
1: First would be a song called Summer Well off a self-titled album called Interpol. It's a very underrated album by Interpol, I think, is that self-titled one. I want to say it came out in like, gosh, maybe 2009, something like that area. But a very strong album from those guys. And uh, Summer Mm -hmm. Wells, track three from it. Really enjoyed that one. Secondly, a pretty good song uh, for these times, which is uh, Up All Night, Sleep All Day from Slaughter. Mark Slaughter. Yeah. One of the great jams of the 80s, I would say. It's got a kick-ass pre-chorus, you know, and oh, yeah. just, the chorus is super anthemic and I love Up All Night by Slaughter.
0: So great band. I mean, great, great hair metal band. No question.
1: No doubt about it. No doubt. And lastly, maybe a little foreshadow here, maybe a little foreshadowing. That would be No Easy Way Out by uh, Ozzy Osbourne off the album Down to Earth. Hmm. All right. Foreshadow. Feather tickle. <laughs> See what is in your head.
0: A singer that uh we mentioned previously that we lost fairly recently that's Benny mardonez This was the uh, blue album that he put out in the early 90s that had a couple of re-recordings of some of his previous stuff, but I never really loved you at all is the uh the the first track on that record and just a great just a great Benny song. You know, I I love that blue album. There's a couple of awesome tracks on there. The second is actually from, uh, obviously one of my favorite bands, um, of all time is failure. And the, uh, the lead man there is Ken Andrews. And this, just this week, he put out a solo EP. Um, and there's a song off there. Uh, I haven't really dug into it fully, but, uh, uh, I believe it's the lead track on it is called sword and shield. And it's pretty good. Ken's solo stuff to me can be, somewhat hit or miss um, but you know huge fan I go way back on his work and good to see that you know he's using the uh, you know the time period here to put out some new music so you know it's always good to highlight the classics but it's always good to highlight new stuff coming out on the old podcast here so Sword and Shield is a nice new track from uh, Ken Andrews and then the last one Nubs I know one that uh, another uh, we spoke uh, earlier during La Woman about a three-part song. This is a three-part song by a band called the uh, the uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll censor it here the effing AM, and this is obviously that combination of Trans Am and the effing Champs, two great San Francisco indie bands that are both big-time favorites of mine. They decided to merge and record as the effing AM. They recorded an album called Gold. And it closes out with a musical masterpiece, which is the Gomez Trilogy, uh, which consists of Acoustico Gomez, Elastico Gomez, and then the triumphant finale of the trilogy, which is Electrico Gomez. Now, anyone listening to this podcast, if you haven't heard this, which many of you probably haven't, please look it up. It's the, the Effing AM is the band. The record is called Gold. And this uh, Gomez trilogy is something extremely special. Amazing uh, song,
1: absolutely amazing,
0: and one that I probably don't go a week without listening to it. But I did spin it in the car yesterday at full blast, and it is a really, really brilliant piece of work. Well, Nubs, thanks. You know, it's a what a fun you know group to talk about. Obviously, a very enjoyable album to listen through. I know it's pretty blues heavy which is not our favorite genre, but I think for both of us to put it in the collection and for both of us to, you know, really give it, I think the respect it deserves shows uh, how good and creative and, and sort of some of the modern takes on the blues, you know, how much uh, this album is, and in many cases should be appreciated. And it was a, a great time uh, to talk about it with you.
1: Loved every second of it. Now I'm going to go and more perfectly perfect my, uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah the second one he goes a little loud on that one you know the first one's kind of a uh, and then the second one's uh. but I don't know, i'm gonna go work on it we'll see how we do in the next episode
0: you know so many moments of jim coming in hot here on la woman just one of the many beautiful things about this record all right well that's a wrap on episode 19 we will see you next week for a new delight here on everybody's favorite podcast and yours Twins. Now an album. Two
1: twins. Well that's about it. That's all we have.
0: I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.